Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Continuing our series today, Christmas, Hyper Hope, let's turn in our Bibles to Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The Hope of the End of War. Peace on earth. I mean, that's what we often sing at Christmas. And yet, Christmases come and go, and so do wars and rumors of war. At the end of the First World War in 1918, after the world recoiled from the devastation that was wrought and then followed by a worldwide pandemic and great human suffering, the watchword among so many was that we have fought the war to end all wars. And the idea behind that was that technology had developed to such an extent that the potential for human suffering and misery coming from war was now so great that humanity, having seen the great war, was done with war. We would find ways other than death and mayhem to solve our differences. The horror of war was over. What a hollow hope indeed. It was a bunch of hype. The taste for war has not left the human spirit in any sense. Indeed, the people who said that they had seen the end of all war were not paying attention, for at that very time, the Russian Civil War was well underway and wouldn't end until 1922. The third Afghan war also happened in 1919, one year after the First World War. I mean, wars didn't cease, and as we know, they weren't confined to small internal matters. World War II and since then, wars without number. You know, not long ago, I had a conversation with a young woman who told me that the human race was now in a place where we had outgrown war. She was very young, and I had to smile, and I wished, I wished it were so, I told her. I didn't have to prove, however, that she was wrong because in her life she would witness how wrong she was. And so back to the song of the angels, peace on earth, they sang. And since they sang or said these words, there's been one war after another. And yet there is hope that's born at Christmas. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You know, yesterday we spoke of the increase of his government, but today we want to speak of the increase of peace. In order to do that, and to examine whether those who dream of peace on earth through Jesus the Messiah are not chasing a pipe dream or a hype, but we're actually basing our hope on something real and objective, let's go to the prophet Micah and understand what he had to say. You know, yesterday we spent some time with Isaiah, but today we're going to spend time with Micah. Micah is often quoted at Christmas time, and we do that from the very famous Micah 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so when the Magi arrived in Jerusalem and inquired as to where the Messiah was to be born, the theologians in the city pointed them to Micah 5 verse 2 and to Bethlehem. I mean, most of us know that story very well. But the context of that quote and why Micah tells us that is often not explained. And so for the remainder of today, I want us to rewind, go back to Micah chapter 4, and get the context. 
Now, if you don't know it, Micah, the prophet, he was a contemporary of Isaiah, the prophet. There are sections in both books that are remarkably similar, leading many to believe that those two men, Isaiah and Micah, were colleagues or they were part of a team that prophesied in those days. Micah said he prophesied during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, great length of time overlapping with Isaiah. I think we can say, and I'm approximating, but Micah probably prophesied over a period of some 20 to 25 years. Well, Micah opens with a word of judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel. Not long after that, he moves on to pronounce judgment against the southern kingdom of Judah. Listen to the foreboding tones from which the the book begins, Micah 1 verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. God in a place of holiness is testifying against the people, giving evidence of their wickedness. Judgment is coming both on Israel and on Judah with its capital in Jerusalem. The entire earth should pay attention to this. And with that, Micah brings out the evidence of guilt against Israel and Judah. Now, you might think then that the seven chapters of this book would be simply one denunciation after another, but amazingly, it's not. By the time we get to Micah chapter four, Micah will give us a picture of a perfect reign of righteousness that will come. That's the hope of the book. But go back to chapter three because it's not quite there yet. In chapter 3, we repeat the theme of injustice in the land. So Micah addresses the rulers in the land, and he asks, Is it not enough for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? That's the contrast. People who know better, they don't act better. Whenever it suits their purposes, Micah, they tear the skin off my people. He means by that they don't care much how much harm they do, provided their power and wealth will increase. I mean, anyone reading the early chapters of Micah is served well to reflect on the world we live in today. I mean, how often is it that those in governmental power grease their own palms, increase their own power base, no matter how many people are ground down underneath their feet? But for Micah, the situation is even worse. The religious leaders were just as bad as the political leaders. They cry, says Micah, peace, and they do that when somebody gives them something to eat. That is, they prophesy blessing to the wicked leaders whenever the wicked leaders pay them enough. I mean, we've all heard the saying, you know, whoever pays the piper calls the tune. Well, that's exactly what these wicked prophets were like. They said whatever the wealthy upper class wanted them to say. And so the wicked rulers now not only had political power, the religious elite told the people, God is blessing those wicked men. It sounds like a mess, doesn't it? Well, in many ways, that's the mess the world is constantly in. You know, marrying the state to religion and then using that to enforce the advantage of the few and oppressing the misery of the many. Such is the case in great many places on the earth. You know, in terms of Judah, Micah ends his denunciation by saying that God is sending disaster on Jerusalem. Zion, that is Jerusalem, would be so thoroughly destroyed by the enemies God sends against them that the city would look like a plowed field or a a heap of ruins. Again, we would think this book is nothing but a denunciation of evil, but then suddenly the mood changes. Micah suddenly goes from the present evil to a day in the future, a period of time he calls the latter days. The latter days for Micah is that period of time in which evil comes to an end and when righteousness reigns. Let's let him explain it. Micah 4, 1 to 4. 
It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. You see what's happening here. Micah is looking past the present evil age to the end of the age. In that day, the highest mountain on earth will be the Temple Mount. That's the place where the temple in Jerusalem stands. Now, it won't be a plowed field or a heap of ruins in the end of the days. It'll be, rather, the most important place on the earth. All the people of the earth will flow to this place. Kings, presidents, prime ministers, world leaders, as well as other people of influence will constantly go to the Temple Mount because from that place, from the Temple Mount, a universal law is going to go out. It will be a perfect law. It's not going to be a corrupt law. This law will be based on perfect righteousness. And the reason the world leaders go to the Temple Mount, so fascinating, is that they go there to learn how to implement this perfect law in their own respective countries. And whenever there's a dispute between nations anywhere on earth, the perfect law of righteousness will settle every single human dispute. That's why there won't be war anymore. That's the consequence of this law. Universal peace will reign. Peace will come on earth. All technology that was used for war and self-defense will then be replaced by using that very same technology for the betterment of the human race. That's what's meant by beating their swords into plowshares. There's quite a reason for hope. Christmas comes the same time every year, whether we're ready or not. We can't put the season on snooze until we're in a cheery mood. Christmas doesn't wait. It comes to find us where we are, as we are. This year, Christmas arrives to a troubled world. How can we celebrate Christmas in days of tension? It's in times such as these that Christmas is celebrated best. God sent his son as light and rescue in days of despair and darkness. The Father didn't wait for the world to improve. He sent Jesus as help and hope for us all. In troubled times, we don't delay Christmas. We run to it. That's our prayer for you this season. On behalf of the whole team here at Back to the Bible Canada, Merry Christmas. Jesus has come, and he remains Emmanuel despite difficult days. While the hope that's displayed in the book of Micah is audacious and seems wildly impossible, and yet, you know, whatever we might accuse Micah of, we can't accuse him of being naive. The realism of the early part of his book, the unblinking look at evil within his culture, and especially among the ruling elite in his day, that's a 
penetrating and insightful analysis of his culture. He sees how heartless those in power can be, as well as how religion is used to shore up those who are in power. Micah is not naive. He's a hard realist. But how then can such hope spring from a man who has seen culture at its worst? And the answer is found in chapter 4, verse 2. It says, in the latter half of the verse, it says, For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. I think that Micah believes that the law of the Lord, which, you know, as Psalm 119 says, is perfect. It is, by the way. Micah believes that it is, but it's so much more. It's not only perfect. But God uses this law not just to condemn wickedness, but he actually uses it to govern the earth. Now, it's not that Micah thinks that in some miraculous way in the future, you know, the law of the Lord rules because people suddenly, you know, get a taste for it and an appreciation for it. That's not what he's saying. Look at verse 3. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. That is to say, that in order for the law of God to be obeyed on earth, there must be someone to enforce it. There must be a he. There must be someone who can arbitrate or judge between the people groups of earth. Think about how in our contemporary world, the United Nations was appointed to be a body of nations that would arbitrate between the disputes of people. And it's an excellent theory. I mean, shouldn't there be an international body made up of people who can be objective and propose solutions to world problems rather than simply allow one war to compound upon another? Especially in this day of advanced military technology, when war can so quickly result in a massive death toll, the existence of global international bodies is thought to mitigate this. And in some way it does. But consider, there are permanent member states in the UN with not only profound differences in outlook on human rights, but also this arrangement suits their unrighteous political agendas at the expense of others. A country may do immeasurable harm only to be assured that it will not be condemned by the UN because it has allies in the Security Council. They'll be protected in their evil. And furthermore, the very nations that seek to prevent evil, some of them do the evil themselves. You know, in the end, the United Nations will not prevent nations of the earth from beating their plowshares into swords. That is, to use the best human technology and transform it into weapons of mass destruction. Micah saw someone, a he, a messiah who would judge disputes between nations, not simply through raw power, but through both power and perfect righteousness of the law of the Lord. Decisions would be made not on the basis of whose interests are furthered, but on the basis of what is objectively right. Unless someone should ask, who makes the decision of what's objectively right? Micah would respond, God does. And if we should say, well, just who does he think he is? Micah would respond, he thinks he's God. He's altogether righteous. He's the Holy One. You know, from the very beginning of his book, Micah says, he speaks from his holy temple. God, the one untouched by any unrighteousness. God, the one who alone dwells in unapproachable light. God, the one in whom no wickedness is found, who not only acts righteously, but in whom there is no darkness at all. This one has given his law, and this one will send his Messiah from Jerusalem to rule the earth. And that leads to a remarkable statement in verse 4. Let's read it again. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. You know, several things excite me about verse 4. I mean, the first is that every man has his own vine or fig tree, and that means it's not the government that owns his or her property, 
but that every man has a little piece of this beautiful earth that they can cultivate and grow and invest their life into and make it prosperous so as to care for their needs and the needs of their family. Now, someone might say, and I can see what you're doing here. You're making a very clever case for private enterprise against socialism. I mean, you're probably a right-wing evangelical. To which I respond, who doesn't want to own their own piece of land or their own business or their own enterprise in which they can invest and build something? That's a basic human desire. Since childhood, we've all wanted our lives to count for something and to use our skills in such a way that will bring good to ourselves and our family. See, the difficulty comes in when what we have wanted is taken away because of meanness and corruption and power plays and the suppressing of the dreams we had to build something. I mean, you just forget your politics. Look into your own soul. That's what you dream for. Micah sees a day when men and women can do this very thing, tend their own piece of property without the fear that the investment of a lifetime will be robbed from them. The one who is enthroned in Jerusalem will see to it that this will not happen. No one will make them afraid, for the world's perfect ruler, the Messiah, will ensure that righteousness will reign. And then comes verse 5, one we haven't read yet. Let's read it now. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. There are two ways to understand that verse, and the first is that it refers to the present hour, that is, in the present All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we, the people of faith, will continue in faithfulness to the God who has made promises that in the end righteousness will reign in the earth. But a second way of reading this is to say that Micah is looking forward to the future, to a time that he has already called the latter days, the days when the Messiah rules. I mean, after all, Micah has not been describing heaven, has he? He's spoken of a day when there are indeed disputes between nations. I mean, how will heaven, when sin is vanquished, have disputes between people? There won't be. For in the last era, when the kingdoms of this world ultimately become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, when sin is ultimately and finally defeated, then all of our actions, those of us who are saved and brought into the eternal kingdom, all of our actions will be for the glory of God and for the good of one another. When Micah sees a latter day when sin is still present, when nations threaten war, But the one who sits in Jerusalem rules them, as Psalm 2 verse 9 says, with a rod of iron, he enforces the perfect law of God. In that day, when nations would rebel, but when they find one enthroned in Jerusalem to be stronger than they are, that that one will enforce his rule on them. In that day, though all the nations of the earth still cling to their gods and goddesses, says Micah, we, the people of God, will cling to the one true God and to his Messiah. You know, Kathy and I, my wife and I, have Micah 4 verse 5 engraved onto our marriage rings. We made that commitment at our wedding. In the world in which we live as husband and wife, regardless of the winds of change we will see in the future, regardless of the affections of the people of this world, regardless of where the world goes, whether it will exemplify righteousness or wickedness, we, the two of us, would walk in the name of Yahweh the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was our commitment when we married. That is, the people of God are distinguished, not by their desire for world peace, but rather they are distinguished by their desire to know God, to love God, to submit to God, and to walk in his perfect ways. And so that's the future that Micah speaks about. And we know, of course, that after those days, that is, after the millennium, 
There will be a rebellion against the one who reigns in Jerusalem, and the Messiah will slay them, and they will be no more. The unrighteous will then be assigned to the eternal punishment, and the righteous will find their place in the eternal kingdom. But back to Micah. When will this ruler come? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah says, this world ruler will be born in Bethlehem. And eventually, after born in Bethlehem, he will rule the earth. Is that hype? The answer is, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and he already defeated much evil in this world by healing the sick and raising the dead. Eventually, he rose from the dead and conquered death itself. And I know this, because he has done this, he has given us all the evidence in the world that he will return again. And when he does, warfare will cease. In that day, nations will not use their technology for the destruction of the human race, but for the betterment of humanity. That's the hope. It's not a hype. The one who promised it demonstrated his ability to do that very thing. If death has been defeated by Jesus himself, and if he is indeed the Messiah who is to come, can he not defeat all other things? This is genuine hope. This is not hype. Upon this we stake our lives. Whether the nations believe or not, whether they walk in the ways of God or not, it matters not. Those of us who have placed our trust in the Messiah will walk in his name forever and ever. That's our commitment. We know that the future is with the people of God. John, thanks so much for your message. Can you help us understand a bit better what is happening when Jesus physically reigns in Jerusalem? Yeah, I I think we have to understand that there is a distinction to be made between um, what we call the millennium and then the end of the age, which is the new heavens and the new earth. The millennium is not heaven to come. The millennium is a time when nations carry on in their own ways, in which they can go their own way, but Christ himself governs the earth from Jerusalem, rules in righteousness, and ends all warfare on this earth. During that time, I mean, there might be people still going their own way, doing their own thing. All of that will continue, uh, but, um, you know, but, but Christ will govern the earth. At the end of that period of time, when Satan is released from prison, then, of course, the nations will again rebel against their creator, but that will bring about the end of the age and the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. So uh, there's a sequence of events that follows. We need to understand that in seeing the Bible. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Christmas, Hyper Hope, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, Dr. John Newfeld here. Right away, thank you so much for listening, supporting and praying for Back to the Bible Canada. This year, I've been privileged to share God's Word around the world, and I've never been more convinced of the importance of the mission of Back to the Bible Canada. But I know this, I wouldn't be here and this program wouldn't exist without your help. Truly, it's such a joy to study God's Word with you. This month, the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada share a goal of raising $517,000 by December 31st. Can I ask if you're able to consider a gift to support this ministry? It would mean so much, not just to us, but to so many in desperate need of truth. 
Call us, would you, at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And from all of us at Back to the Bible Canada, bless you as you celebrate our coming Savior.